That's what we have uh, for announcements. We're going to turn now to God's word. And uh, we've been studying the book of Exodus. Exodus tells a story about uh, the nation of Israel who are slaves in Egypt. And you probably know the famous story of Moses leading them out of slavery. They went through the Red Sea and then they spent three months wandering in the wilderness, and they came, came to Mount Sinai. And that's where we are in the story. They're at Mount Sinai. And it's at Mount Sinai that they're given a law that's called the Book of the Covenant. So it's chapters, Exodus 20 to 23 are these laws that God gives to them. And the first part of those laws are the most famous, the Ten Commandments. We've been looking at that, those all this fall. And now we're uh, coming into some more of the, the detailed laws that are given in the Book of the Covenant. So we're going to look at Exodus chapter 21, the first 11 chapters, and then I've tagged on a few other, uh, or f- sorry, first 11 verses, and then I've tagged on a few other verses from the chapter as well. So let's uh, look at God's word now together. This is Exodus chapter 21, starting in verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. Now these are the rules that you shall set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh, he shall go out free for nothing. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free, then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door of the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. When a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master who is designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people since he has broken faith with her. If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as with a daughter. If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food or clothing or her marital rights. And if he does not uh, do these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. And skipping down to verse 16... Whoever steals a man and sells him, and whoever and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. And down to verse 20. When a man strikes his slave, male or female, with a, a rod, and the slave dies under his hand, he shall be avenged. But if the slave survives a day or two, he is not to be avenged, for the slave is his money. And skipping down to verse 26. When a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go free because of his eye. If he knocks out the tooth of his slave, male or female, he shall let the slave go free because of his tooth. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we need you to be our teacher this morning as we look at a difficult text. One that uh, just reading uh, raises so many questions for us. Lord, we want to know your goodness. We want to trust in your care. We want to trust in your purposes. So be our teacher. Send your Holy Spirit to open our minds, open our, our, our hearts to understand your holy word this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Today, uh, we are talking about the uh, difficult topic of slavery in the Bible. And I imagine for most of you, uh, even just having me read that passage I just read for you may have made you uncomfortable of asking, you know, why are we reading aloud a passage that is talking about slavery? You know, and you might think, here is the infallible, inerrant, holy word of God, and it's giving instructions about uh, being a slave owner, how to own slaves. And you might wonder, how is this not an indication that actually the Bible is not the word of God? This is a cultural artifact from 3,500 years ago about a certain moment in history, and we are crazy in the modern world to take this book, a passage like this, and use this as our guide for our society, for our individual lives, for our families, for our spiritual life. How are we not crazy to do that? Or to put it more bluntly, the atheist writer Sam Harris wrote a book called Letters, Letter to a Christian Nation, which was a little book where he was arguing to just the average American why Christianity is clearly false. And in the opening pages of Sam Harris's book, slavery in the Bible is his first line of attack. And he quotes this passage from Exodus 21, and then he says this, Nothing in Christian theology remedies the appalling deficiencies of the Bible on what is perhaps the greatest and the easiest moral question our society has ever had to face. So the easiest question is slavery and the Bible gets it wrong. The Bible must clearly be wrong. Now it's remarkable uh, that Sam Harris quotes Exodus 21. He fails to mention what the book of Exodus is about as a whole, which is about God hearing the cries of a nation of slaves and liberating them. And, you know, if there's one thing the God of the Old Testament is, is he is the liberator of slaves. He hears the cry of slaves, and he loves slaves, and he tells his people over and over, remember that you were slaves in Egypt. Remember what that was like. You should not be harsh like the Egyptians. And so at the very least, that should give us pause when we read a passage like this, There's a tremendous amount of subtlety and nuance uh, in the Bible. And you can't just blunder through the Bible and say things like, look, the Bible condones slavery. In fact, there's no question that throughout the history of human civilization, there is no book that has worked more effectively against the institution of slavery than the Bible. It was in Christendom that we had the first idea that uh, slaves were human beings made in the image of God deserving of rights. Actually, this is the first place that we see that, rights being established for the, this lowest, the lowest class. Now, of course, part of what makes slavery a particularly difficult topic for us is that our country has a shameful history of slavery in the Confederate South. And that was a Christian civilization. And the wicked men who treated African-Americans brutally justified it with passages like this one. They used the Bible to justify their wicked acts. And uh, so we need to be clear from the outset as we try to understand these words from Exodus that we are in no way trying to excuse that despicable institution whose effects still haunt and plague our culture. In fact, uh, as we'll see, I I think it's debatable whether 
what we are reading about in Exodus, we should actually call this a slave. What's being described here is a slave. You know, many scholars say we shouldn't use the word slave. We should use the word servant because it's so different than our, what we imagine slavery to be. And if the American South had really taken seriously what the Bible says here, slavery would not have existed. So today we're going to try and understand what the Bible says about slavery, and we're going to do that by answering three questions. The first is, what was slavery in the law of Moses? We're going to have to spend a fair amount of time on that first question. What was, in the law of Moses, what, what does it look like? What was it for? Why, are we, why do we have these verses here? What was, what was slavery in the law of Moses? The second was, is how was slavery in the law of Moses different than the surrounding nations? Culturally context, well, how was it different in, in, in that day? And then third, how does the Bible eventually end slavery? So three questions. What was slavery in the law of Moses? How is it different than the surrounding nations? And how does the Bible eventually end the institution of slavery? So three important questions we've got lots to talk about. So first is this. What was slavery in the law of Moses? Now, one of the first things that that's important to keep in mind when we read a passage like this, is that slavery in a small kingdom like Israel in the 15th century B.C. would have been very different than it was in kind of the imperial civilizations of the ancient world. You know, some of you, when you hear about slavery, what you picture in your mind is these metropolitan cities where they have these slave markets and everyone's in chains and people are buying and selling slaves. Or, you know, ancient Greek uh, culture viewed manual labor as demeaning. And so the educated upper classes thought, well, you know, we should give ourselves the leisure and the contemplation. And they had slaves who did all the manual labor and, you know, all the physical work. Israelites didn't think that way. Israelites said, you know, God created, God works. It's, it's dignifying to work. And so the slaves in ancient Israel, they worked alongside a family, the mother and the father and the kids were working, other hired workers were all working alongside one another is also very different than the commercialized, uh, large-scale slave industry of, of Europe, of the Americas, of the, that the Arabs also practiced. Nothing remotely close to that is envisioned in the Old Testament. Instead, slavery was an unfortunate but necessary mercy for the poor. Slavery was an unfortunate but necessary mercy for the poor. And let me, let me explain that. There, there's a parallel passage to the one that I just read to you in Deuteronomy 15. Deuteronomy means the second law. So the first generation that came out of Egypt received the law in Exodus. And then the second generation went into the promised land. They received a second law called Deuteronomy, the second law. And there are a lot of parallels between the first law and the second law. And uh, in Deuteronomy 15, it gives instructions about treatment of both the poor and slaves. And in those verses, God gives this beautiful vision of Israelite society, of people being generous to one another. And you say, be open-handed and care for one another and share with one another. And the, the ultimate vision that God gives in the beginning of that chapter is that there will be no poor among you. Poverty would be eradicated. That's the vision. But God, you know, God, that's an ideal vision. God also is realistic that we're sinners. We live in a broken world. And so later in the chapter, it says, For there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. There's these instructions about 
open your hand to the poor. The very next verse in Deuteronomy 15 says this. If your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, sells himself to you, he shall serve you six years. That's this passage that we're reading. And uh, if someone came to a place of destitution, they dug themselves a deep hole of debt that they had no hope of getting out of, slavery could be a chosen option for them. And so slavery was built into the legislation of how you care for the poor. It was intended to be a humane way of dealing with poverty and helping to eradicate poverty. Now, some of you might hear that and you say, slavery is humane. Well, in order to get that, we have to understand a couple things about what it meant to be a Hebrew slave, okay? A couple things. First is this, that being a slave meant that you were a bonded worker. You had a contract. You were bonded to work for, you know, your, your boss. And you see that in this passage starts in verse 2 where it says, when you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years. And in the seventh, he shall go out free for nothing. So the first thing to see about slavery in Israel is that it was not perpetual. You didn't buy a slave and permanently own that person like he's your property. You had a contract. It was a six-year contract that you were going to work for him for six years. Then it's going to be over. And generally, a person would sell themselves into slavery because they were in debt. And so you'd find someone who'd pay off your debt for you, and then you'd go work for them uh, for six years. At the end of six, six years, you'd be debt-free. And you could choose who your master is going to be. Maybe you have someone who pays off your debt and then you work for them. Or maybe you work for your creditor, you know, the person that you owe money to. And this explains the language of people buying and selling servants. Or this is what it says in verse 21. Maybe you heard that language there where it says, but if the sl slave survives a day or two, he is not to be avenged, for the slave is his money. He's his money because the slave's paying off a debt. And I know that language is uncomfortable for us, but we use some language like that even in our day. You know, you think of an NBA basketball team has an owner, and the owner, you know, trades players with other teams. And, you know, none of us would think that an NBA player is, like, you know, the lowest class and is not made in the image of God and doesn't have rights because they're traded by owners. That's not what we mean. That's just, so the language here uh, does not mean that, the Bible does not consider these people as made in the image of God and deserving of rights. And so first, being a slave meant that you were a bonded worker paying off a debt. Second, being a slave meant that you were an apprentice. And in that Deuteronomy passage I was talking about, you know, it says that they work for six years and then they go free. And in Deuteronomy, though, it adds a paragraph after that, and this is what it says about, about when they go free. It says, and when you let him go free from you, you shall not let him go empty-handed. You shall furnish him liberally out of your flock, out of your threshing floor, and out of your wine press. As the Lord God has blessed you, you shall give to him. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you today. So that means at the end of the six years, it's not only that they got their freedom, but they were given everything that they needed to start a new life. It was like they were given an inheritance. And I'll tell you what, you know, imagine what that would be like in our day. You know, imagine someone in our church who has accrued more debt than they're ever going to pay off. And uh, maybe, maybe they don't have skills to work and get a job. Maybe they're not educated. 
and uh, maybe they grew up and never learned discipline and, and how to work. And, and there's really no hope of where they're going to go in, in the future. And maybe they, you know, they have alcohol addiction or maybe they're you know, sexually promiscuous. And they found you know, some godly person in the church who maybe owns a business, a person who has means, and they say, you know what? I'm going to do whatever you want for six years. I'm going to follow you around, and you can tell me what to do. It's going to be like the military. And you get food, and you get houses, and you're going to follow this guy around. You're going to watch how he leads his business. You're going to watch how he does his devotions and his family at the table. You're going to watch how he relates to people in the community, and you're going to learn all these things. And over the six years, he's going to gradually give you more and more responsibility, and you're going to have more status. You're going to be like a part of his family. And then at the end of six years... He's going to give you enough money for you to go buy a house and to start your own business and set you off on a, on a new life. That's not that bad of an arrangement. That's actually an incredibly humane way to care for the poor. It's like a second childhood. You know, you know, for many of us who don't know how to handle money or don't know how to work is because maybe we didn't learn that in our family growing up. And that's what's saying, you know, you need a family to teach you these things. You're going to learn these things. It's going to set you up for a new future. Some of you would say, I'd love to have a second childhood. I'd love to learn, learn these things. And so we can hardly imagine a more humane and beautiful way to raise up the status of the poor. Now, in our culture... I mean, I think in many ways we have to do this, but the way we care for the poor is very impersonal. You know, we have a massive bureaucracy that cares for the poor from a long distance, from Olympia or from, you know, Washington, D.C., and uh, there's no relationship there. And we should see how deeply relational the vision of the Mosaic Law is and how transformational it is. You would leave saying, those six years changed my life. That's what God envisioned. Slavery was a merciful way to eradicate poverty by allowing someone to be a bonded servant who received a six-year apprenticeship that would totally change their lives. Now, I know some of you might hear that and you say, okay, that sounds beautiful. That's not what I pictured when I heard the word slave um, is lifting up the, you know, the status of the poor. But there are still some troubling verses in that passage that I just read. And so I need to take a few minutes to talk about some of those verses. So let's look at, let's look at them together. Verse 3 says, If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out alone. Now, what that sounds like is that if two people get married while they're slaves and the man earns his freedom, that the slave owner is going to separate the family, divide the family. And the man goes off free, but he holds on to the wife and the children. But one of the things that we know from Deuteronomy is that the term limit on the the slavery that's only for six years applies to both men and women. And so what this is probably talking about is you have two people who had a debt to pay off. And let's say the man has already worked five of his six years, and the woman has only worked two of her six years. And they want to get married. They can get married. But she still has to pay off the rest of her debt. And so when the man goes free, he has three options. He can either say, you know, I'm going to wait for my wife to pay off her debt, and then we're going to go get on with our life together. He could go make some money. You know, he's been furnished by the master, and, you know, he's got a new business going. Maybe he can buy his wife out of slavery. 
Or they can say to the, to the master and say, you know what? We love being a part of your family. We love being in your house. We just want to stay. And that was an option too. But the point of this verse is that getting married while you're in slavery does not just automatically forgive the debt. Probably a more troubling verse is verse 7 and following, which says, when a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people since he has broken faith with her. If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as with a daughter. If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. And if he does not do these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. I probably can't say everything there is to say about that paragraph, but the short of it is that this is describing an arranged marriage. It's probably a lower class family that's maybe in, in debt, is maybe destitute, They have an opportunity to marry their daughter to a family that has means. And in the process of marrying the daughter to to that family, it's going to relieve the whole family. And so the possibility is that this woman is going to be seen as like a slave wife. I know that's totally culturally alien to us. We don't have arranged marriages in our culture. But the thing to understand is that these laws are protecting the young woman who is entering into that marriage. He says he can't just get rid of her. He can't sell her to like a dangerous people group just to make, to make money off of her. If, if she marries one of the sons in a family, everyone is supposed to treat her like one of the daughters as a part of the family. And if the husband marries another wife, which I know you got questions about polygamy. I'll come back to that later in the sermon. But if the husband marries another wife, she cannot be like second class to that wife. She gets the full status as a wife. She needs to be cared for and protected. And so the gist of these verses is that they are protecting the servant woman. And in fact, this verse appears so early in the law of Moses. It's amazing. It tells us that God knows this woman is entering into a vulnerable situation and she needs to be protected by his law. So in summary, what was slavery in the law of Moses? It was an unfortunate but necessary mercy for the poor They gave them an option when they were in a financial hole to become a bonded worker and an apprentice, and it was carefully regulated by the law of God. And what's amazing, you know, as I mentioned, these verses aren't tucked away at in the end of the law of Moses. Oh, yeah, let's we got to deal with the slaves too. Look at verse one, what it says. Now these are the rules that you shall set before them. And these are not laws, these laws aren't given to slaves. These laws are given to slave owners. There's nothing commanded to slaves. It's commanded to slave owners and how you are going to treat people who are in a vulnerable situation in your home. The protection of the lowest class is God's primary concern. And in fact, this is the first legal code from the ancient world to regard slaves as persons and not as property. And that leads to our second question. Okay, so first, what what was this institution? But... We've heard what that is. It's, a, it's an apprenticeship. How was slavery in Israel different than the surrounding nations? And every ancient Near Eastern scholar has acknowledged that the law of Moses was radically different than the laws of the, 
uh, regarding slaves in, in the nations surrounding Israel in the ancient Near East. And as strange as these laws sound to us, it's important for us to understand that these are huge innovations. These are huge steps being taken forward in human civilization toward ridding the world of the institution of slavery. And Paul Copen, who's an Old Testament scholar, and he's written about slavery in the Old Testament, says that in particular there are three laws in the law of Moses that if they had been heeded by either the you know, Christian South or Christian Europe... It would have been impossible for the institution of slavery to, to emerge. And so I want to point out what those laws are, three important laws that make the law of Moses distinct. First is, this passage tells us that kidnapping was a capital crime. The buying, kidnapping people, selling them, and buying people was a capital crime. You see that there in verse 16 where it says, whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. The whole European and American slave trade was built on stealing the stealing of people from Africa and selling them as slaves. This is expressly forbidden here. Second, this passage tells us that injured slaves were to be released. And the first mention of this is in, actually in verse 20, the protection of slaves. Verse 20, it says, when a man strikes his slave, male or female, with a rod, and the slave dies under his hand, he shall be avenged. So this says that all the laws about homicide, if you, you know, protecting the life of people, it was also given to slaves. Slaves' lives were protected by the law. And then in verse 26, it says, when a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go free because of his eye. If he knocks out the tooth of his slave, male or female, he shall let the slave go free because of his tooth. You knock the tooth out of a slave, the slave just gets their freedom. Which, you know, by the way, this is a case law, which means they're supposed to say, well, anything like getting your tooth knocked out, anything equivalent to that should give you your freedom. And actually, we, you know, our staff talks about these sermons a couple weeks before we give them, and uh, Ava Moles, who's our, our office coordinator, was saying, you know, I was a slave. I'd want my tooth to get knocked out. You know, I get, get my freedom. And but what she says is a pretty low bar. And, um, uh, and, and what this says is there was no place for the brutality that was such a huge part of the slavery of the American South. It was not to be tolerated by the law of Moses. Third law that was distinct. This is remarkable. This is from Deuteronomy. Is that runaway slaves were to be protected. This is in Deuteronomy 23. Listen to these words. You shall not give up to his master a slave who has escaped from his master to you. He shall dwell with you in your midst, in the place that he shall choose within one of your towns, whatever, wherever it suits him, you shall not wrong him. What this is saying is if a slave has an oppressive master, they're allowed to run away. And if a runaway slave comes to your house, you're supposed to bring him in and let him live with you. You do not send them back to the, the abusive master. Now, this might be a surprise to you that words like these are in the law of Moses, but there's nothing remotely like this in the ancient world. Which also means that the fugitive slave laws in the South, in the South, they said if a runaway slave came to you, you had to bring them back to their master. That law sounds a lot more like the Babylonian code of Hammurabi. 
Code of Hammurabi has all kinds of laws about slavery, but it's laws about slaves not running away, and it's, and it's hidden. They're the least important people in that law. In the law of Moses, they're the first, most important people to be protected by the law. And so you have these three laws, no kidnapping, no injuring your slaves, and you need to protect runaways, plus slavery is limited to only six years, and at the end of it, you're given whatever you need to start a new life. This is nothing like the slavery of the American South. But you still might ask, okay, well, why doesn't God just say, let's end slavery? And, you know, scholars have said slavery in the ancient world, it was such a part of the culture, it'd be, that'd be kind of equivalent to saying to our culture, you cannot use gasoline anymore. Let's just try to stop gasoline. You know, it's just like, that's not possible. Our whole industry is built on it. it actually, it would hurt more people than, than it would help. The goal of the Mosaic Law was to eradicate both poverty and slavery. And the Bible's approach to slavery, it's similar to the Bible's approach to polygamy. You know, some of you, if you've read the Old Testament, you've wondered, like, what's the deal with polygamy? People have multiple wives, and God never seems to say anything about that. Why doesn't God just say no polygamy, period? Well, what would happen if God said that? Polygamy just stops. Well, let's say there's a man, he has four wives. What's he going to do? Well, I'll keep my favorite one, and we'll get rid of the other three. Now you've got three women who don't have a house and a husband and a family to provide and protect them. In the ancient world, they would have been immensely vulnerable. God knows that is absolutely unwise. So instead, what God does, he says you get Genesis, which shows us that God's ideal was one man and one woman, Adam and Eve, in marriage. And then you see every polygamous marriage in the Old Testament is not a happy situation. And you're like, I don't want to be in one of those. And then you come to the New Testament, and it requires that all the elders in the church must be one woman man. And so the example to the whole church is one man, one woman. And gradually, God eradicates, gets rid of polygamy, and it's no more. This is how it is with slavery. People needed slavery to pay off their debts and it would put them in a bad situation to just get rid of it. And as you read through the Bible, God gradually elevates the status of slaves. And so this leads to our last question. How does the Bible eventually end slavery? How does the Bible do it? And to answer that, I want to first point out that this passage talks specifically about Hebrew slaves. Maybe some of you picked that up in verse 2 where it says when you buy a Hebrew slave. And if you know much about the topic of slavery in the Bible, you know that the laws for foreign slaves are different. They're not the same as the one we've been talking about here. So, for example, a foreign slave did not have a term of just six years. And so you might read those passages and say, you know, this sounds like kind of the chattel slavery where the, the, the slave is the property of the owner. But what's interesting is that outsiders, foreigners in the Old Testament are always having an opportunity to be incorporated into Israel and into a relationship with God. So for example, slaves could be circumcised, receive the mark of the covenant, and they could take the Passover. The slaves had to get a day of rest on the Sabbath so they could worship with the the Israelites and, and learn about who God was. And as they became a part of God's people, the benefits of the Hebrews would then be extended to them. So God is saying over and over to the Israelites, you know what it was like to be a foreign slave in Egypt. Don't be like the Egyptians. Don't be harsh like they were to you. And it's as if God is saying, treat Hebrew slaves well. And by the way, 
Everyone's welcome to become a Hebrew slave. If you're a foreigner slave, you're welcome to become a Hebrew slave. Everyone's welcome to receive those benefits. This is an interesting form of cultural transformation that actually appeared later, a couple thousand years later, in Western Europe. Rodney Stark, who's a professor at University of Washington for 30 years, and he studied the kind of cultural effects of Christianity throughout history. And Western Europe had largely become Christian uh, under Charlemagne in the ninth century. And during the Middle Ages, the church said that all slaves are welcome to take the Lord's Supper, the bread and the wine. All slaves are welcome to God's table. And then the church paired that and said, oh, and by the way, you're not allowed to, a Christian is not allowed to enslave a, a brother. So all the slaves are welcome to the table. And then they say, well, you can't enslave anyone that you eat this table with. And literally in the Middle Ages, uh, slavery was abolished in Western Europe. Now, of course, it came back. It came back you know, in the, the age of the New World, and, and we, we lost uh, that vision. But the Bible's answer to slavery is best described in the great Christmas hymn, O Holy Night. Some of you will know these famous words. Truly he taught us to love one another. His law is love, and his gospel is peace. Chains shall he break, for the slave is our brother. The way the Bible ends slavery is by saying the slave is our brother. That is what God was intending in Israel. The slaves are your brothers. Open your hand to your brother. Bring them in. Get them back on their feet. Actually, if you read in the New Testament, there's a letter of Philemon. is about Paul is like kind of mediating between a slave owner and a slave. And he's saying to the slave owner, receive him as a brother. He's your brother. You guys are brothers. And I think that phrase is important because on the one hand, it, it elevates the status of slaves, that there are equals. But I think there's another reason why slavery is an important theme in the Bible. Because when the Son of God came to dwell among us, He not only lifted up the lowly, but Philippians tells us that Jesus took the form of a servant. Jesus says of himself, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And many of you know the famous story where Jesus gets down on his hands and knees. He washes the feet of his disciples like a lowly slave. That is our master. The master who paid all of our debt that we couldn't pay, he paid for it on the cross for us. And what do all of Jesus' disciples call themselves from that point forward? Bondservants of Jesus Christ. He's our master who paid my debt, and I want to give my life to him. But our master became a slave. He is a brother to the slave because he became a slave, and so we love him for that. And what being a Christian means is doing what it says in verse 5. Look at verse 5 from this passage. I love this part. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife and my children, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to God and he shall bring him to the door, the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl and he shall be his slave forever. This is what we've all done. We've seen the love of Jesus for us who paid our debt and we've said, I love my master. He came in service to me, and I want to offer my life back in service to him. And the reason servitude can't be absolutely erased from the Bible is because the kingdom of Jesus is the kingdom of serving others. 
The king himself did it. Then all his disciples do it. And the brilliance of the Bible is that Jesus comes to end slavery by becoming a slave. And all the slaves who believe in him will reign with him. He, like, makes them masters. So the master becomes a slave, and all the slaves become masters with the king. This is the nuance of God's word. And so we should expect the Bible is going to have strange passages like this. But this is why we should be confident that the Bible is truly the word of God. Who could have ever thought of such a plan but God himself? Who has ever had such love? Only the Christ of the Bible. So let us adore him today. Let us trust him today. And let us gladly call him our master forever. Let's pray. Mighty Father in heaven, we have seen the devastating effects of brutal men using slavery to dehumanize others. We pray that you would end the institution of slavery throughout the world. We pray that you would use your church in every nation. And we pray that we would see the lowly, the poor, raised up. That we would remember that Jesus has raised us up. That Jesus has paid our debt. And Lord, we do pray, though, that we would never lose a heart for service. That we see Jesus washing his disciples' feet, and we, too, would have that same heart. We thank you for your word that fills us with new thoughts. Would these words live deep in our hearts, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.